Well, if you would, open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 3. We will be in the same text that we were in last week, but we looked at the first six verses, and this week we'll continue the Apostles' run-on sentence by looking at verses 7 through 13. Beginning with verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you, Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord. At this time, uh, Children's Church and Crossroads is dismissed. And as our kids are making their way out, you know, sometimes you, you're not sure what a passage is about until the very end. You, sometimes you don't know what the story's about until the very end. And our, our passage this morning ends with verse 13. So I ask that you not be discouraged. I ask that you not lose heart over what I'm suffering. Some of you know Ben Spies. He, he was one of the founding members of Riverside. Um, him, he and his son, Jake, they moved to Lexington, but um, still is at Inda. You'll run into him if you see him, if, you, if you're there. Uh, but Ben grew up on the mission field. He grew up in Papua New Guinea. And um, he has a vivid memory that he shared with us years ago that there was a, there was a young couple who came to Christ in the tribe that they were serving. And um, I can't say their names because I can't pronounce it, but they had English names they took. I can say those. Peter and Sarah was their English names. Uh, But um, they had recently come to Christ and then found out that she was pregnant. And in that culture, in that village, there were certain rituals you did to protect the baby to protect the life of the child. One of them, very interesting, was you don't name the child until they're sort of out of 
the dangers that comes with sudden infant death. And when they're old. So Ben told me kids are running around in the village five years old and they have no name. The nickname that they give to all the kids is, means little worm, which <laughs> sounds harsh. But the idea is this, there are evil spirits and if they know your child's name, they will curse them. But little worm, who's going to mess with little worm? Right? Why bother with that? Well, they named their child from birth, Michael. They also did not do the traditional rites and rituals that were to be performed to ward off the evil spirits from their child. Because, as Peter said, it does not honor Jesus. Ben was running by their hut, he said one day, and he heard loud sobbing. And he ran home and he told his dad, who by that time had become best friends with Peter. And he ran to the hut and sure enough, Michael had died. And you can imagine what they felt. You can imagine what they heard in the village. Why did you not do the rituals? There's a reason why our fathers have done this. Why did you name your child? You brought this on yourself. You brought this shame on our village. Why would you do that? And they were asking the same question. Why didn't God protect my child? In a similar way, I believe uh, the Ephesian churches that Paul's writing to, who had recently converted to Christ and had suffered the slings and arrows of fortune in a fallen world. More than that, they found themselves marginalized, put on the outside of society. They became suspicious, kind of like um, the Jews in the city who didn't participate in the civil activities that were connected with the worship of local gods and goddesses. As we've already noted, their churches meeting in homes were, were in the shadow of the great temple Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was this massive image of the goddess Artemis. It was an emblem of power and majesty, and they're huddled together in homes. They felt weak and small, and no doubt lay like Peter and Sarah were asking, what have we done? Did, what do we give up all this for? In a world that was controlled by magic, remember all the magical scrolls burned at Ephesus? Multi-million dollar worth uh, collection of scrolls where gods and goddesses could be manipulated and powers were dangerously in the air. The Ephesian churches felt fragile and vulnerable. And to make matters worse, their champion, the Jewish apostle of the Gentiles, is rotting in prison. It doesn't look like they're winning. And so, Pause to say to them, I ask you, don't lose heart because I'm in prison. Don't lose heart. It's actually a sign of our victory. You know, there's two ways to lose heart, as Paul uses that word. One way is to give in to fear and go into flight mode and go to despair. Peter and Sarah were tempted to go to despair. The other response, and Paul, and Paul talks about this too, is to go into fight mode and to want control, power as the world sees power. 
We want to win the arguments, win the fight. Both of these are a panic response of the flesh. Paul says we do have a war to fight, but that war is not against flesh and blood. It's against powers and principalities and rulers. And the weapons we use, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, are not the weapons of the flesh. They are divinely powerful arguments, not of this world, of its philosophies and its empty conceit, not rhetorically overwhelming arguments that persuade by the power of the speaker and the brilliance of the arguer. Paul says, our message comes with fear and trembling, but in the power of the Spirit. Our power looks very different than the world's. We do not wield the sword of the state, though God gave the sword to the state for justice. We wield a far more powerful instrument, the sword of the Spirit, wielded not in panic, but with gentleness and patience and self-control and love and peace. That's what it means not to lose heart, to stay in the fight, but to stay well in the fight, not to run to panic, to fight or flight. Here's what real power looks like. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power doesn't belong to us. We are afflicted in every way, that's power. How so? because we're not crushed by it. We're perplexed, we're confused, but we're not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but we are not forsaken. We are struck down, but we're not destroyed. Always carrying the body, in our bodies, the death of Jesus. That's what victory looks like, carrying in ourselves the death and humiliation of Christ so that the life of Jesus might be made manifest in us. That is power, and it's what we need. Would you pray with me as we look at our passage? Father, we thank you that you've given us divinely powerful instruments through your Holy Spirit. Lord, may we be cut down by this Spirit and humbled, convicted, Lord, and comforted. And Lord, may we, in the face of many threats in our culture now, stand up with courage and, Lord, in love. May we stand and not lose heart, but fight the good fight and to fight it like Jesus, with Jesus. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. Paul begins here in verse 7 with a rehearsing of what he mentioned back in verse 2, the gift of his apostleship. He says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. Paul sees his apostleship as not a burden he must carry, but as grace given to him. It's a remarkable thing that struck him throughout his life that me, to me, this grace was given. He reminds young Timothy, one of his assistants at Ephesus, share in suffering for the gospel with me. This isn't weakness, Timothy. He says, it is by the power of God we share in suffering. 
The God who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, he called us. We did nothing to deserve this noble calling. We just got it because of his kind intentions. It is power, grace is a power. It's not just God's favorable disposition toward you. It's not just his unmerited favor. It's power. Did you notice that in verse 7? By the working of his power, it's the same language he used back in chapter 1 when he spoke of God's power displayed in Christ's resurrection, when he worked in Jesus' dead body, a divine power that raised him up. And he says that same power operated in you in chapter 2 when he says, you, though you were dead in your trespasses and sins, he raised you up with Christ. You have experienced that divine power as my brother Wayne preached a few weeks ago. And Paul experienced that power. I mean, think about Paul's story. Remember, Paul was what modern-day scholars would call a religious terrorist. He chased down and murdered his religious execution Christians because he saw the Christian sect as a dangerous heresy that was polluting the purity of Judaism, and it needed to be snuffed out. He was in fight mode, <laughs> and he, there was a lot of blood on his hands. He was zealous for his religion, angry at these heretics who were defiling it, who were, who, were, who were giving the shameful name of God's Messiah to a crucified man. Shameful. And yet on his warpath, Jesus boldly interrupts him. And the one who sought the purity of Israel who would have been horrified at the idea of Gentiles, uncircumcised Gentiles, being in the house of Israel, is now the apostle to the Gentiles. How awesome is that power? Paul says, puts it this way in 1 Corinthians, it's on the screen. He says to the Corinthian church, I delivered to you as matters of first importance what I received that Christ died for your sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Caiaphas or Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he, he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me which he, is, he cannot believe that he had that privilege. I am the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And yet me, the enemy of the church, who was murdering the bride of Christ, he made me the apostle. Paul never got past this remarkable grace in his life. It shaped him. It shaped his heart. It shaped his identity. He was always amazed by grace. Some people say, what, what, what happened on the road while, while, while Paul was interrupted on his war path? Was it a conversion or was it a calling to ministry? 
And the answer to that is yes. And you know what? The same is true for you. When Christ brought you to Himself, He also called you to ministry. You received a grace, just like Paul. All of us have received grace in Christ, but each one of us has received a unique grace. Ephesians 4, 7, we'll get there in January. Paul says this, but grace was given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. So each of, all of us have grace, but each of us, that grace looks different. It has a, it's uniquely refracted through your personality and your wiring and the gifting of the Spirit in your life, the divine energy, as Paul calls it, that's operating within you through the Holy Spirit. And just like Paul, you are to be good stewards of that gift. It's, it's why we did the Heidelberg Catechism question about communion of the saints. We are stewards of these gifts. First Peter puts it this way. Peter writes, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's multicolored grace. Do you know your gifts? Do you know what they are? It's a fun question to ask your small group, you know, a group of people that know you to say, what do you think my gifts are? It's a fascinating, sometimes you'll be shocked what you hear. Sometimes you won't. Sometimes you go, oh, I knew it. <laughs> but each one of you has a gift, multiple gifts. And it looks different in different seasons. It's not as though you just sort of do one thing for the rest of your life. It's, it's going to vary at different stations of life, seasons of life. But you have a gift, and are you stewarding it wisely? Are you using it to build up the people of God? You have a great purpose in this world. It's to be a huge part of what God's doing in the world and has been doing all along. We didn't know it until Christ came and brought it to light that he's making one new humanity in Christ Jesus and restoring heaven and earth. And you have a critical role to play in that, to be part of building this new humanity by using your gifts to serve the body of Christ. Well, this grace is displayed not only in our lives, but it's on display to the powers that be. Our, we often think of ourselves as sort of the audience of our life. It's not the case. You have a heavenly audience as well as an earthly one. And that's what Paul says in these verses that continue in verse 8, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's our earthly audience, and to bring to light for everyone. Verse 9, what is the plan of His mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? That's, again, earthly. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. There's a sense in which the whole point of your story really isn't about you. It's to show off God's glory, yes, to you, yes to us, but also to a whole cosmic audience we know little about. In Ephesians 2, Paul says, God raised you up at the right hand with Jesus so that in the coming ages you might be his trophies of grace for all to see in the heavenly places. So Paul says he does two things here. He preaches the, the unsearchable mystery. That means no one found this out. No one figured this out. It was hidden. It's unsearchable. It's inscrutable. 
Paul uses the same word in Romans when he's wowed by God's wisdom with Israel and the nations. And he says, oh, the depths and the riches and wisdom of knowledge of God, how unsearchable his ways, how inscrutable his judgments, using the same word. No one saw this coming. No one put this together. But now it's been made known through the apostles' ministry. And not just the Gentiles, but he says, enlightening all, using the same word he used in Ephesians 1, I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened, that you might understand fully the, the, the inheritance that's yours, the power that is the unsearchable riches of this power. I want you to know what is unsearchable, unscrutable, unknowable. We'll see next week. Paul prays that you know the, the love of God that's past knowing. That's what his whole ministry is about. I want you to go deeper, ever deeper into this mystery because you've only scratched the surface and it gets better and better. And so he does both. He evangelizes the Gentiles and he instructs the saints in this mystery. And we have the same call. We continue the apostolic ministry. The true church is not only holy, one, and Catholic or universal, it's apostolic. Meaning not only is it built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, but it continues the apostolic mission. We're still on mission to preach this gospel to the Gentiles, to the nations. We still have that task. Yes, Paul was the last of the apostles, last of all. He was the caboose on the apostle train. But we still run on the same tracks. And we, as we continue that legacy, we are called to make disciples of the nations. And um, at Riverside, we are currently in the process of rebooting our global missions team. That team is going to work together to establish both individual and corporate commitments to global mission, which is our call that Jesus, the one with all authority in heaven and earth, has given and entrusted to us. And to encourage and equip the saints here to live in light of that mission, to call some of you. Some of you have this gifting, this apostolic, little a apostolic gifting to go to, to, to cross-cultural contexts and be a missionary. Maybe you don't know it yet, but God's starting that call to, 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 to equip the saints to support that work as God expands his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven through us. It's also a team that's going to pray together and develop strategic partnerships with other mission agencies and organizations that we work with. This is an important part of our church. And if you're interested in being a part of this team as we seek to build it again from the ground up, I encourage you to connect with Paul and Jessica. They're right here. If you guys, would you guys mind standing? Paul and Jessica, yes. You can even take a bow. They're, they're great. Yeah. <laughs> I, I really encourage you to, to just seek them out after the service and say, hey, just tell me more. I want to learn more. There's no commitment, uh, but they would love to talk to you. But interestingly, it doesn't stop there. The mission isn't just so Gentiles know and everyone knows. Paul says, all this is so that, now through the church, the, this beautiful wisdom of God is made known to rulers and powers in the heavenly places. Isn't that interesting? The rulers in the heavenly places could just refer to angelic authority in general, angelic powers good or bad. Uh, in Ephesians 1, we see that Jesus was raised up 
by God seated at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion in every name that is named using the same words here. And that could be all authority or could be particularly evil powers and authorities. We know that in Judaism at this time, this language of power and authority and ruler was used to speak of angelic powers, both good and bad. And so it could have that sense. Remember in 1 Peter, if you remember that letter, Peter's commending the gospel to his audience and says, you know, the the prophets who wrote about these things, they searched diligently trying to discern when is he going to come? What's he going to be like? They didn't know. Even as they prophesied the coming of Christ, they didn't know. And he ends by saying, even angels long to look into these things. Even angels were like, what is God up to exactly? What's it going to look like? Even angels were shocked on Christmas morning. God in the flesh? Did you see that coming, Gabriel? Nope. (laughs) But in the context of Ephesians, it's more likely that he's speaking of the enemies of God's people, not good angels like Gabriel, who's the angel that had some sort of charge over Israel. And interestingly, was the angel not only Daniel conversed with about the destiny of Israel, but that met with Mary and announced the good news. But rather, uh, in this context, as we saw in Ephesians 6, we noted it a few weeks ago, our war is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers in the present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil. Uh, likewise, in chapter 2, you, you were dead. You followed the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. In context, Paul seems to be thinking specifically here of the enemies that God is, Christ has been raised above whom he will destroy as he places them under his feet. So God's showing off to the demonic realm, the demonic powers, his victory. The word that's used here, he, it's all interchangeable. Gospel, uh, unsearchable riches of wisdom, uh, of, of mystery, or here, the multifold wisdom or manifold wisdom. That's a rather uh, boring translation. The word is a very interesting word. It's a complicated word. It's a long word. It's a word that was used to describe um, like the incredibly uh, elaborate tapestry of scarves or floral arrangements that were beautiful, elaborate, and complex. I like how one translator rendered it. To now, the, to, the, to the powers and rulers through the church might be made known the complex beauty of God's wisdom. I love that translation. I think it captures the, the heart of that word, the complex beauty. There's an aesthetic quality to this word. It's not just that it's complicated, right? It's that it's beautiful. It's a mini splendored beauty, another translation puts it. And how is it beautiful? Well, it's beautiful in so many ways that God is healing the world that's broken. He's not throwing it away. He's not done with it. He's, he's reconciling all things. He's restoring all things. He's, he's going to fix what's broken. 
It's beautiful because it's marked by mercy. He takes undeserving sinners and rather than giving them just justice, gives them grace and forgiveness. It's beautiful because he defeats the enemies and powers in the most subversive way. It is dripping with irony. And for that very reason, they never saw it coming. This is a great line. It's from 1 Corinthians chapter 2 on the screen. When, when, Paul, when Paul says, we don't do, or you, we, want, we know you Corinthians want to be impressed with high rhetoric and my displaying wisdom and brilliance. I'm not going to give it to you. I'm going to give it to you in plain speech with fear and trembling because I want the Spirit's conviction. That's way more powerful than the rhetoric of men. And then he says this, however, we do have wisdom, a hidden wisdom that we impart. It's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret, hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. This is the same thing he's talking about here in Ephesians. None of the rulers of this age, and here I suggest he's not talking about Herod or Pilate. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. What a wonderful, there, right there is the beautiful irony crucified the Lord of glory. Those words don't belong together. Shamed, humiliated, murdered the all-glorious one. <laughs> they didn't see that coming. I mean, guys, this is, right, this is where C.S. Lewis, of course, got the line of the witch in the wardrobe. I mean, it's the whole scene of Aslan. The very moment the witch thinks she's won, when Aslan is torn and tattered on the altar, is precisely where she loses. The wisdom that seemed to the world so foolish, the divine power that looked so weak was the very wisdom and power that causes the present powers to be fading away. Their sunset date is set (laughs) and they're disappearing. Their power is gone. God born weak and helpless as a baby. Who saw that coming? To a poor and forgotten family in Bethlehem, raised in the backwaters of Nazareth, a nobody in a third-rate territory of the Roman Empire. This was God's Messiah? That's not what power looks like. An effectively homeless rabbi, attended by fishermen and tax collectors and prostitutes, denounced by his professional peers as a fool, as a blasphemer, and even a demoniac crucified by Rome. The very weapons that the evil powers of this dark age employed to crush God's Messiah proved to be the very means by which they were forever disarmed, triumphing over them by the cross, as Paul puts it in Colossians. And they are put to open shame. That's what Paul says. The weakness of God is proved stronger than all the devil's hideous strength armed with his cruel hate and demonic hordes and all their terrible array and fury, they are stripped bare and now exposed. And it's through the church this is now made known, not just through the resurrection of Christ, but through the church as the monument of his resurrection. And we talked about this last week, that as 
Christians gather together from all different nationalities, all different ethnicities, all different languages, of all different political stripes and backgrounds and family loyalties, as we gather together around the new loyalty of Jesus, it displays to the, what Bible calls the so-called gods, the powers and rulers that masquerade as gods to the nations, that the domain that they had authority over has been taken from them, has been returned to its rightful ruler, Jesus. They have lost their authority. They have lost their subjects. Their power is disappearing as we speak. And they know it because when the church gathers, they see it. Not just in our gathering, but when we work through conflict together, how did the demonic powers maintain control over the nations? Fear. Racism, xenophobia, fear of death, fear of the outsider, right? They used all these tactics to keep us isolated and alone and under their power. And Jesus took that hostility and what did he do to it? Wayne, what did he do to that hostility? Tore it down. Tore it down. He put it to death. He put it to death. So they know they've lost their weapons. They've lost their edge. Not just that, when they see humanity gathering together in Christ's name, together with peace and love and joy, they know they've lost their reign. They know it's the beginning of a whole new creation. Now the heads of creation, men and women, are gathering in the name of Jesus. They know it's the beginning of the end for them. But the church is worship. When we gather and sing Jesus' praise, when we gather together in prayer, look at verse 11 and 12. Look at what we have. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we now, we who were orphans and outsiders, who had no right to claim uh, any hearing before the Almighty One of Israel, we have boldness of access and confidence, confidence of access. Now, God always heard the prayers of, of everyone in the world. Do you remember Hagar? She was an outsider to the covenant. She had no claim to the Abrahamic line, even though she bore Abraham's son. She was in the wilderness, essentially a widow with an orphan, alone. And she cried out. And who heard her? God. And what did she name that God? The God who sees me. She, he saw Hagar before she saw him. And he always hears the cries of the orphan and the widow. But here's the difference between Hagar and us. We don't come into God's throne room as orphans. We come in as sons. And we have every right to stand in that room and, and speak frankly. The word that's used here of boldness is the word Greeks would have used when f the way friends can talk to each other and be frank with each other without fear of offending. There's just an honesty, a transparency. It's just a frankness. It's not rude. It's not disrespectful. It's not irreverent. It's frank. I can just come into God's presence. The Holy One of Israel, I can just walk right into His presence <laughs> because of the blood of Jesus. And when the demons see that, they shudder. C.S. Lewis's great little book, if you haven't read it, I recommend it, Screwtape Letters. One, he has the uncle demon, Screwtape, addressing his nephew, and he says, I received your letter where you raised your alarm about your, your patient's resolve to pray. 
I do have some advice for you, but first, get a grip on yourself. The panic is palpable. <laughs> every, make you move, every move you make now is fraught with peril for your cause. This is nowhere truer than in the practice of prayer, where the enemy inexplicably and unfairly offers to meet with his pets. That's how the demons put it. Guys, when, when the church gathers and prays, knowing we have full access to God, that he loves to answer the prayers of his saints, especially as we pray for the advance of the gospel, the devils tremble. They shake in their boots. Well, I've got to move on. Last point, sub subversive suffering. <laughs> subversive suffering, verse 13, as we've already noted, is sort of the whole point of this digression. So, I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. It isn't shameful, me rotting in prison. It's glorious. It's for your glory. How so? Well, remember what we said at the beginning. The Ephesian church was small and weak and emblems of power and magic and, and just authorities in the air, spirits in the air were evident and felt, and they felt weak, exposed, suffering loss culturally, socially. Maybe they lost children as well. You could take your child to the temple of Artemis and get a blessing of protection there. They didn't do that anymore. And maybe their baby was sick and they're thinking, why did we do this? God's power is displayed all the more clearly in our weakness. Specifically, God's power is displayed all the more clearly when the powers of darkness unleash their worst upon us, and yet we persevere. The nations rage against the Lord and His anointed, and yet what did the young church do in Jerusalem? They kept preaching the gospel. They didn't falter. They didn't lose heart. And that couple in Papua New Guinea, they kept trusting Jesus. You know there were evil spirits that wanted to intimidate them out of their faith. And they did their worst, the worst that God allowed them to do. And they still lost. Here, all the powers of Rome have railed against Paul. He rots in a Roman prison. They brought all the authority they could to wield against Paul, to silence him. And here he is writing letters, opening the eyes of the hearts of many to the wisdom of God. This is how Paul put it at the end of his letter to, Second to Timothy as he approached his own death. He says, remember, Timothy, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, has preached in my gospel for which I am suffering, bound with chains like a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. I endure all things for you, Ephesians, for it is for your glory. The devils have done their worst and they have failed. They have chained me, but not my gospel. 
You, Ephesians, are evidence of this. You, your life transformation, your existence, your faith, this letter in which you can read my insights into the mystery that is now instructing you and filling your heart with joy shows the demons have lost it. And this is true subversion, to subvert the power and authority of the established system, of the world system. And that's what the gospel does in this beautiful subversion. Leslie Newbegin in his book, The Gospel in a Pluralist Society, writes this. I love this. The victory of Christ over the demonic power which was embodied in the Roman imperial system was not won by seizing the levers of power. It was won when the victims knelt down in the Colosseum and prayed in the name of Jesus for the emperor. That's how the demons knew they lost. The soldiers in Christ's victorious army are not armed with the weapons of this age. They were the martyrs whose robes were washed in blood. It was not that a particular emperor was discredited or displaced. It was that the entire mystique of the empire, its spiritual power was unmasked, disarmed, and rendered powerless. Think about that. The emperor who could control an empire through the fear of death Satan, who controlled the world through the fear of death, said to, to young Christian women who were slaves, bow down to me or die. And they said, no, but I'll pray for you. Fearless. That's how they knew they had lost. And not only do we no longer fear death because Jesus came, we even mock it. Where of death is your victory? Where of death your sting? Jesus has conquered you. And so I'm not afraid. And whatever the demonic powers can threaten against you, Jesus has made an open mockery of them. Whatever it is you're afraid of this morning, I want to encourage you to bring it before the resurrected Christ. Compare it. See how small it is compared to him. And then walk with boldness and confidence of faith. Would you pray with me? Father, we open our hearts to you now. And we ask that you would examine us, Lord, as we sing. That you would expose and surface the many fears we do have, the many anxieties we carry. Lord, these anxieties matter to you. That's why you say, cast them on to me. You don't, you say, don't, you don't say bury them. Pretend like you don't have them. You say, lift them, name them, and then place them on me. Let me carry those with you. I am Emmanuel. Not only am I Emmanuel, the God who is with you, I am he who has overcome. So Lord, help us to rest our souls into you even now, our weary and heavy-laden souls.